Welcome back. Segment two of the Ron Show on the America One Radio app and at AmericaOneRadio.com. It is a gloomy Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. I'm your host, Ron Roberts, and I'm joined by David Pepper, former Democratic Party chair from the state of Ohio, also a Cincinnati city councilman, a Hamilton County commissioner, accomplished author. You even ran against uh, Governor Mike DeWine uh, for attorney general back in 2014. And uh so now that you're out of politics, what do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy being out of politics and writing books? Because you've written some really cool books that even the, the likes of Bill Clinton has said, hey, that's a pretty good book. Uh, and But you're also very much involved in the political process still. Do, do you enjoy being out of it and making your work done on the outside, or is it easier to, to do it when you're on the inside? You know, I really enjoyed being in office, and I enjoyed actually enjoyed being chair of the party. Uh, because it allowed me to help others get into public service. So I can't, you know, I, I like both writing and both fiction and nonfiction is also really rewarding. I'm also a, a father of a couple young kids. So my current life is more amenable to being a good dad mm. than when I used to get up every morning and drive 100 miles to get to the state party headquarters. So it's, you know, I've enjoyed both, but, but, you know, public service is something that I, I greatly valued and enjoyed doing. And uh, I'm, I may do it again, but right now I'm trying to do everything I can to shine a light on attacks on democracy like we're seeing in Ohio. And unfortunately, I know you're seeing in Georgia as well. Yeah. You mentioned before we went on the air that you actually attended school with Stacey Abrams. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your connection with her. Yeah, I did. We both were in law school together. We, went, we were both uh, you know, fortunate enough to go to Yale. Uh, I always joke she clearly took some classes I must have skipped, <laughs> given her incredible success. But uh, I met her in the fall of 96, just a wonderful human being, um, you know, one of the smartest folks in her class, one of the, the friendliest, nicest folks in her class. And it's she could have gone and done anything she wanted. I mean, it was obvious, but it's it, it, and I've read a few novels. I never knew until later that she was writing. She was you know, taking law classes, so mm-hmm. she's incredibly talented and obviously uh, not only Georgia, but all of, all of America. So I want to mention the away from voters, you know, ever since she got back to Georgia. So I want to mention, by the way, that you have written books, uh, The People's House, The Wingman, The Voter File. These are nonfiction works, right? All three of those are nonfiction, correct? No, those are fiction. Fiction, Uh, fiction, fiction. Right. I got it backwards. You're right. I got it backwards. Yeah. And the fiction sort of, but they're all about politics. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I literally wrote The Voter File. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I wrote The People's House, the first book, to try and use a story to expose how horrific gerrymandering. So there's sort of a, a, a purpose. Now, my, I try and tell good stories, and they've gotten good reviews for that reason, but they're, they're very much based in political reality. Mm-hmm. And my, my point was always use some good stories, and this is often how people think best about the real world, use stories to try and highlight real problems. And yeah. that's, that's sort of the method of my madness in writing, in writing uh, the fiction I've written. And having written those and then moving over uh, into nonfiction to write uh, your latest, Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines, uh, do you not find yourself – I do all the time when I, when I talk about gerrymandering, when I talk about voter suppression, when I talk about uh, nuance in wording and laws and, and even what they're called uh, colloquially, do you not find yourself going back to Animal Farm? I mean, I, I just find myself always thinking of Animal Farm when I have these these diatribes, these these long-winded discussions uh, on my show about how easily the American population, the American voting electorate, seems to get fooled. Yeah, and that's why I wrote Laboratories of Autocracy. But if you, I had a, a, a reporter who did a story about it say, 
congratulations. You wrote the first book about state houses that was interesting to read, <laughs> meaning it was a page turner. And I really, because there's a risk of writing about state houses that people just will never read something like that. I do try and get into some, again, real world, some, sometimes humorous, sometimes horrifying examples of how corrupt and undemocratic these state houses have become. And, and they really have been. I mean, the, the point of the book, the, the title, Laboratories of Autocracy, is a reference to state houses. And it's not an exaggeration that they have become the front line of the attack on democracy. They're sealed off from the people through gerrymandering voter suppression. Mm -hmm. So they can do some of the most undemocratic things, whether it's, you know, what you've seen in Georgia, we've seen Ohio, attacking drop boxes, crazy voting laws, you know, intense gerrymandering, stripping powers away from other officials uh, to the crazy extremist stuff, you know, abortion bans, no exceptions. You know, it really is a downward spiral. And the book tries to get into it in a way that will, as it says in the subtitle, wake people up. Um, because we watch Washington so much and we think that's where the battle is. And obviously it is to some degree, but, but make no mistake, the front line in their attack on democracy is, is in state houses. And I try and use this book and write it in a way that people finally see that because if you don't see it, that's when the damage is being done. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene gets a lot of attention, obviously around the country in Georgia, but there are hundreds of people just like her mm -hmm. in state capitals who've been the majority all this time attacking democracy ruthlessly, and we have to pay attention to them as well. So, I mean, the easy fix obviously would be, you know, uh, a gerrymandering case taken to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court says, okay, gerrymandering is kind of crazy, kind of illegal, and it's the 21st century. Can we not use computers to draw lines? But right. short of that, because we have a 6-3 conservative majority, that's not going to happen. So how can we attack uh, gerrymandering at the state level that get state houses that are more reflective of the electorate's viewpoints. Yeah, one of the tragedies of 16 was by not and holding off that Merrick Garland uh, nomination was they got themselves an anti-gerrymandering majority they would not have had if Hillary Clinton had been president. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that, and, and because of that, they never take up this issue. Two things. One, when Democrats ever again have control of the Senate and the House, and this is going to be the one of the big things they fail to get done this term, they have to p pass the next iteration of the Voting Rights Act, as, as you know, as Senator maybe the, one of the best champions of. Within that bill, in the Senate, was actually very per, uh, clear-cut protections against gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. If they had passed it I th early on in this term, which they didn't do because I don't think they were really focused like they should have been on, on the, the attacks on democracy, you probably would have had a different House majority outcome mm. Be because this gerrymandering doesn't only control state houses, it ends up having a decisive uh, impact on um, you know the, na the, na the national vote for Congress. So right. one, the best solution, and the filibuster should play no role in blocking this, it's just not a legitimate argument that it should, would be federal law. Mm -hmm that would protect against other types of attacks on voters, but also gerrymandering. Number two, short of that, is state-level reform. The, most, the best reform is what Michigan did of an independent commission that draws the lines, or Arizona has that. Mm -hmm. um, ironically, one reason that Senator Sinema was able to get elected to Congress was the result of gerrymandering reform in Arizona. Um, and and we've, you see a number of states pushing that, 
usually when those types of reforms get in front of the voters on election day, they pass them overwhelmingly because voters know that a system where politicians rig their own districts is deeply broken and deeply illegitimate. So that can be done in some places. The other thing I'd say, and this is this is an issue for Georgia and Ohio and other states, the one thing I'd urge folks in states that are gerrymandered to do is it's bad enough to be gerrymandered, but it's mm-hmm. even worse when we allow many of these districts to not be challenged at all. In the last cycle, you know, I think Georgia had dozens of Republican districts for that state house not even have an opponent. Right. That's true in Ohio and Florida. It's not a Georgia issue, but it's it's everywhere. Who challenged in every single district? Michigan. Who had a great year? Michigan. Mm-hmm. You've got you can't, you know, they want through their gerrymandering, they want to deprive citizens of a choice. They want a monopoly on the conversation. And so the thing I'm one thing I'm trying to plead people to do is don't let them win that effort by not running in dozens of districts. There is a value to running, even if you don't win. Holding extremists accountable right now is very, very important. And nothing does more to put extremism on steroids than when people pass the most ridiculous laws. And then the next election, they don't even have an opponent they have to mm-hmm. answer to. Yep. And, and we're talking, you know, look at what happened in Kansas, where, where a straight-up vote on abortion the pro-choice side won. Well, you never even give voters a chance to express themselves if you don't run against the extremists who are trying to ban abortion. So obviously federal law would be a huge help, state level reforming a huge help. But even if you're in a world of gerrymandering, make sure you're running against these people and know that running itself is public service. Even if in the end it's a tough district, running is so much better than letting extremists basically run around these states and never face any accountability, even on election day. It's so ironic you say that, uh, having us uh, spoken of Stacey Abrams beforehand. And by the way, real quick, we're on with David Pepper, author David Pepper, uh, who also served as Ohio Democratic Party chair in the past, uh, Cincinnati City Councilman, Hamilton County Commission, et cetera, and so on. Uh, The reason I want to bring up Stacey Abrams is because during the campaign for uh, uh, her second run for governor, I kept imploring uh, anyone who would listen, you've got to go to these red counties. This is not an electoral uh, race. You can't just, uh, you know, sew up enough votes in these blue counties without going to the red counties and winning over some hearts and minds. And it's easier to dispel the demonization, the caricaturization of a candidate or uh, even the party on the whole if you show up and talk to people face-to-face and eliminate the demonization and the caricaturization. Right. It's, it's, a, it's the 50-state strategy that Howard Dean talked about, you know, what, 15 years ago uh, or more, that right. at the state level, Democrats need to employ at every county. Absolutely. And there's no better way to do that because, you know, Stacey and her team or whoever else, they can only be in so many places. Mm-hmm. If you have a known person in every district – it's it, it, that's a level of politics for people. You know, it's the former teacher who taught everyone in the area. It's the former, you know, a firefighters. You know, you give a local face and a local flavor to that national brand mm-hmm. that otherwise a lot of those voters will only see through television ads, which, again, doesn't cut through that demonization. So I think it's for so many reasons. I mean, the idea that that Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams. And this, this isn't a criticism. It's happening everywhere. But they're running in these incredibly close statewide elections. But in dozens of districts, they're all by themselves mm-hmm. because there's no, there's no state representative candidate 
long term, we have to stop letting that happen. Because if, if imagine the opposite thing. Imagine a decently funded state house candidate every district knocking on doors whether or not Stacey or, or Senator Warnock are in those areas at that time. It lifts turnout. It talks to voters. It, it gives you a local message versus versus simply letting the other side win before the race even starts and not having any activity at the local level. So, yeah, it's a huge. You know, there's a lot of other things I talk about that we have to do, but but. Deciding to run everywhere automatically is a really important part of doing better across the country, especially in close states like Ohio, mm-hmm. but also in states, again, that are that are literally in a downward spiral of extremism. You know, Missouri and Indiana that voted for Democrats not that long ago. That's right. In downward spirals of extremism. And that's downward spiral accelerates so much when the most extremist politicians literally don't they can vote for the craziest laws and then next november not even have an opponent of course they're going to keep doing it and the only the only incentive many of these politicians feel is they worry about a primary which means they need to be more extreme to avoid a primary mm-hmm. and they never worry about a general election so there's no incentive to be more moderate there's only incentive to be more extreme, and that's what's playing out in so many parts of our country right now. So we, I, we can end that by running everywhere. I don't know how Ohio pays its state house uh, personnel, but I know in Georgia it doesn't pay much. And we're in the 21st century. We learned through the pandemic that you can zoom to your job in most cases if you don't have to physically do the labor. I'm wondering uh, on on the on the two fronts. This is a two pronged approach. Is is should there should there be a movement to make it so that state legislatures don't need to be in person if they don't have to be? And also, can we not compensate these folks so that they don't have to uh, leave a job that they have to have the income for, for three months period or six month period, however long that the, you know, the legislature's in session? Does that not also keep just the average working American from running for office? Yeah, that clearly that that would play a role, you know, and it, it's going to be up to each state. But but the, the but yeah, I mean, I think that does um, that plays a role at different levels and who runs. And as chair, I saw that every day. You know, you try and recruit, and people have to make tough decisions about running. But let me just say this: I think one major reason people choose not to run in tough areas is they don't feel like anyone values that run. Mm-hmm. They don't get support. Um, they make hundreds of calls. No one calls them back after they l- lose. No one even thanks them for running. We have to start valuing these runs for office in these tough areas at the run itself is an incredible patriotic act of public service. And we need to treat it that way. And we don't treat it that way. And by the way, so in, in a place like Georgia, Ohio, let's say someone did step up and run in the tough district. And then come August, they get the bad news that there's no support for them. Mm. And no one really cares about their run. In December, they decide, I'm never doing that again. Right. And if anyone asks them, would you run around here? Their answer will be, no, you're left, you're left with no support. We have to change that narrative. We have to make people feel like, and this is true, when they call or tell you, I'm running for a state house. And you ask the question, you know, hey, is your district, can you win? They're like, well, I think I can, but it's a tough district. We shouldn't say, you know, which happens these days, 
well, good luck. See you later. Don't ever call me again. We should say thank you. The fact that you're running in a tough district mm -hmm. is actually more patriotic. Yeah. It's a bigger act of democracy than that you're running in a district that we think you'll probably win. But we're not treating we're not valuing these runs like we should. And over you know, if you multiply, you know, there were like fifty something districts in Georgia uncontested, eighteen in Ohio, you know, thirty or forty in Pennsylvania, forty in Texas. It's millions and millions of people who are literally looking at a ballot where they don't even have someone to vote for at the level of politics, state houses, where most of the damage to democracy has happened. Right. It, so when you it, it, it makes sense on an individual basis. Well, that person, they're not going to win. I'm not going to really help them. But when you multiply it out across the entire country as a pattern, it's a really destructive pattern when it comes to the battle against democracy. And here's the difference. Republicans in the group called ALEC in the right wing in Mitch McConnell, they know the power of state houses. That's why they're always protecting quote unquote states' rights. They know that the state houses are where they're passing abortion bans, where they're making voting more difficult, where they're passing the crazy gun laws. There's a reason Mitch McConnell told Lindsey Graham to not say anything about abortion. It's because they're passing the abortion bans back in states. So the Republicans know full well what these state houses are doing for their agenda. And Democrats too often, except for a few seats, really are not watching these state houses and are leaving so many places uncontested. And it's got to change. Or I think, you know, we, we can have a good year where we win one or two U.S. Senate seats and we just had that. But if we continue to not be competitive at the state level and the state is where democracy is under attack and where extremism is on the move, we could still lose even when we have a good year at the federal year. And that's a lot of what my books and my Twitter account and other things are trying to implore people to pay attention to. All right. So I'm coming up against a break, but I got about five more minutes after that. If you don't mind hanging with me here for just a few seconds, we're on with David Pepper, former Ohio Democratic Party chair, author of several fantastic nonfiction political thrillers, and his latest is entitled Laboratories of Autocracy. This is nonfiction, a wake-up call from behind the lines. We'll talk about Ohio and Georgia voter suppression, some similarities there as well. On The Ron Show, America One Radio and AmericaOneRadio.com after this. 